Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a very special program, a difficult one. Uh, we were contacted by the city manager of Uvalde, Texas, and he was kind enough to join us on the Jefferson Hour for an extended conversation. He's a longtime listener, Vince DiPiazza, city manager, Uvalde, Texas, population 16,000, with its tragedy of a mass shooting on May 24th, 19 fourth grade children dead and two teachers, others wounded. This was not a discussion about gun rights. It was a, a very introspective discussion about what's going on there and what could be done. How does a community of this size absorb a tragedy of this sort and how does it begin to heal? Please join us for an extended conversation with Vince DiPiazza, city manager of Uvalde, Texas, on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss historical and current American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, I've recently read an article, almost a 25-year-old article, written by David Courtright in the American Heritage magazine. And he writes, violence is the primal problem of American history, the dark reverse of its coin of freedom and abundance. American society, or a conspicuous part of it, has been tumultuous since the beginning of European colonization. What's your response to that, sir? If this is in any way true, uh, it, of course, deeply saddens me. I didn't see our national destiny that way at all. I thought we would become the most peaceful people who ever uh, formed a government in the history of the world, that we were separated from Europe by a 3,000-mile ocean, that we had enough land, that there would be no fundamental economic problems of distribution or access to the fruits of life, that we were born in the Enlightenment, with rational uh, concepts of government, uh, including self-government, that we had extended the franchise more widely than any other nation in history, and that this was a formula or a foundation for a real pursuit of happiness. He goes on to say that it, it was regional, this violence. And uh, as you say, there were conflicts with Native people and concerns about slave owners, and that led to people carrying guns to protect themselves. I was speaking about the frontier mostly, but you raise a sad point, which is that slavery, and I myself was a slaveholder, I owned several hundred human beings in the course of my life. One in five Americans was a slave at the time of the Declaration of Independence. That this odious institution can only survive and perpetuate itself through violence or the threat of violence. In other words, if there were no threat of violence on any plantation anywhere, whether it's the sugar islands of the Caribbean or a more benign tobacco plantation in Virginia, if there were no violence or threat of violence, many of the enslaved people would simply walk away. So beatings, whippings, and the brandishing of the whip were unfortunately uh, essential to the to the continuation 
of this peculiar institution. And I said in my book, Notes on the State of Virginia, that man is an imitative animal. The parent storms, the child looks on, catches the lineaments of this approach, this perspective, this, this willingness to use violence, and then becomes the next generation of violent Virginians or Carolinians who are willing to use the whip or, or worse to maintain this institution. So how much this founding paradox, this founding tragedy of slavery contributed to the long-term legacy of violence in America, I can't say, but, but it's not a negligible factor. Finally, Mr. Jefferson, in the article, Mr. Courtright says that men, especially young men, are at the heart of American violence and goes on to say that perhaps it would be better if we put all able-bodied males between the ages of, of 12 and 28 into a cryogenic sleep. I don't know what cryogenic means, but it doesn't sound benign. Yes, of course, when you're young, you feel immortal, you're more hot-headed, you, the, the arts of maturity have not yet begun to soften your character. I don't really recall this in my own life, but I've seen it all around me. But this is probably why the race has survived against all of the odds, against wild beasts and uh, terrible blizzards and droughts and, and floods, that th there's a, an aggressive spirit in humanity, which as a primate has been essential to our survival. So what civilization does is is to try to soften this and to, and to, and to remove its excesses or to channelize them for the public good. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, sir. citizens and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm your host David Swinson. I'm joined by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. We have a, a very special guest joining us this week. Clay, could you please introduce him? I'd be happy to. Uh, as everybody knows, on May 24th, uh, 2022, there was a mass shooting, yet another mass shooting, this one in Uvalde, Texas, and 19 fourth graders, 19 children were killed and two teachers. It seems like this is uh, uh, an endless loop in America, that every few months something like this happens somewhere, and we wring our hands for a while and propose changes, and then uh, the media leaves, and we go back to our normal lives and wait for the next one. But we have a, a very important guest with us today, uh, a longtime listener to the Jefferson Hour, uh, Vince Di Piazza, who is the city manager of Uvalde. And Vince, let me say thank you for volunteering to speak with us. Uh, we are most eager to get a sense of this from someone who was so close to uh, this catastrophic event. So welcome to the Jefferson Hour. Thank you for having me. 
So you're the city manager. How long have you been the city manager? Oh, about seven and a half years. How how many people live in Uvalde? Roughly 16,000. And where is it located precisely? Um, it's about uh, 90 miles west of San Antonio and 50 miles, give or take, north of the Mexican border. What's the basic economy there? It's typically been sort of rural, agricultural. There's a lot of farming around here. Like a lot of places like that, it's it's transitioning to some degree. It's it's something of a tourist and hunting mecca. Lots of ranches in the area, which I would characterize mostly as hobby ranches. But the town itself has a real blue collar feel to it. That's that's kind of you know that's kind of where our our roots are. On May twentieth of this year, that is four days before the event. What were the things that, as a city manager, you had to spend your time doing or thinking about? Well, it's the normal business of a city, maintaining infrastructure, making sure police patrol the streets. A lot of my time is spent with things that uh, most of us would rather not think about, like removing trash and sewage and that kind of thing. So relatively routine matters that any city manager of a small community anywhere would have to do. I think it's fair to say that Almost no American knew of the existence of your town uh, until this happened. That's probably so, true. Our uh, our historical claim to fame is a uh, vice president of the United States that was that was from here, uh, John Nance Garner, who said one he said a very nasty thing about the vice presidency. The vice presidency, yes. You know, David, he's he is said to have said it's not worth a bucket of um, spit. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So that's a pretty interesting small claim to fame. We have no such person here on the high Great Plains. I've been to your website uh, just to take a look, and it's a, it's a beautiful little town. I don't know if I want to say a sleepy, small Midwestern town, but watching the drone flyovers on the website and being from a small Midwestern town, I, I could relate. So I think we have a sense of this, Vince, and we're really eager now to hear you walk us through this. Where were you when the flash came to you? But when I first started getting the reports, I was I was here in my office, immediately tried to get in touch with my police chief, who actually was out of town. So things were going hot and heavy pretty quickly, law enforcement response, obviously. And we have a, a lot of law enforcement people in our community right now, in part, because, well, mostly because of the border crisis. They were already here. We have a border patrol station with about 150 agents that are that work out of it many of them who live in our town. We had lots of folks from the Department of Public Safety, our state troopers who've been here. Um, the border area for, for a while now has been uh, lots of flows of, of undocumented migrants that are coming through here. And uh, prior to that, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we've had, mo we've had nearly daily incidents of, of trafficking of of migrants through the community and so through and around and that's where the law enforcement presence was so my first thought was we got plenty of people to respond to this there may have been too many too many people i don't really know that that story has yet to be fully told but uh, so i was in contact with my chief who was in contact with his people on the scene and our mayor too who's who's essentially an elected volunteer uh, showed up at the command post down there across the street from the school so if I had been in your position, I would have wanted to get up out of my desk and go somewhere. Do get, I, what, What's the role of a city manager at this point? 
I've been out and about with responses to various disaster situations, but this was a law enforcement thing, and I didn't think another body down there was going to be a, an advantage in any way. I had we have all the the communication technology that anyone else has, and and we were getting reports as as it was coming in. So I felt that that particular in this particular instance, my best place was to be be here and relay information and and, and just sort of monitor what was going on. I would guess the phone's ringing off the hook, that you're making calls, that you're trying to make contact with people, that you're trying to make sure you know exactly what's going on. Tell us about, you know, how you manage the, the first few hours of this. You're a, bit, a little bit conflicted on wanting to know the information and not wanting to tie up the people that are on the scene that are dealing with this. You know, the, the whole thing was, was over in, in roughly an hour or less. And then, you know, then the aftermath and the questions and, and the parents... Obviously, lots of parents concerned about their children. We said we have a local civic center that we set up as kind of the, the place for the parents to go. And then the day went by, which was mostly, I hate to say this, I mean, we, the people that were wounded were transported to, for medical services, and the rest of it was, was a, in essence, a crime scene with, with bodies. <laughs> I'm sorry. We understand how difficult this is. That part of it, the image of dead children and the teachers, is a difficult one to get out of your mind. I didn't, uh, I didn't look at any photographs, and I wasn't at the scene, but I have police officers that I've talked to, and they relayed some of the details. And it's, it is something that's hard to get out of your mind. So, it took a long time. It took a lot longer than I thought it should to, to match the parents with, the, with the victims. But if you know anything about guns, you can imagine what an and AR-15 will do to a 10-year-old child. And it took while, it took a long time to, to, a number of parents were waiting. They knew the later it got, that it was likely that their children were not going to be among the survivors. So it was a difficult situation for them, I'm sure. I was in and out of the Civic Center while this was going on. So you're saying that the, the massive firepower of an AR-15 so damaged the bodies of these 10-year-olds that it was hard to identify some of them. Yes, and, uh, and the cruelty of the shooter. I think uh, a local, uh, local pediatrician gave some testimony on that at Congress, you know, maybe a week after the event. All right, so now, by the end of the day, the, the facts of death, injury, etc. are known. The city's still in shock. It's a small enough city that everybody must have known somebody whose child or teacher or that there can't have been many people in the community that weren't touched by this in a way that they would not have been in Seattle necessarily or Los Angeles or New York. 22 families, but uh, their families, their extended families, their friends, um, some of my staff had children on, on sports teams that played with children of the victims, you know, so it it did reach it did reach deep into the community and it's it is you know we 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 talk stereotypically about small tight-knit communities and this one is pretty much that way what happens on day two day three day four as you might expect as 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 news came out you know we, we received an outpouring of offers for assistance and they're the official ones from the the, the folks that are are geared up to respond to these sort of things uh the you know, FEMA and the Texas Division of Emergency Management. Every city in the region uh, offered assistance of one kind or another. We took advantage of some of that, particularly in, in the area of extra law enforcement. 
and then the calls from from all over the country uh, for people who probably couldn't find Uvalde on a map, but never heard of it, like you said earlier, wanting to help, wanting to express their their sympathy. I think people truly hurting by the nature of the incident, you know, sharing that hurt along with us. And so the, the phones were ringing nonstop and emails flying in for the next, gosh, I, I think it's about a week after that, but it started that afternoon as the news came out. You said you got calls from other communities, law enforcement, FEMA, et cetera. Did you get calls from citizens who offered, who are unofficial, who offered to come in some way? Yes, lots of those too. Um, people people want to feel like, like they can be of assistance. They want to help. Um, again, the, the nature of this incident has touched a lot of people deeply. And so... So one of the things was that's that's a thing after an event like this is is trying to handle the assistance. We didn't want to turn anybody away or 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 dismiss them, but we we started making lots of lists and said, you know, if we can take advantage of this, we'll we'll try to contact you later. Um, money, I mean, from almost the very beginning, there were offers offers to fund the funeral expenses, to help pay for medical expenses, you know. Just to, just to help the families out, that that started coming in almost immediately too. At least the offers did. So we're going to take a break here in a minute, Vince. But I I'm going to ask a difficult question. Uh, did you get disturbing calls? I was going to get to that actually. Uh, yes. So I would say it was probably running fifty percent, uh, which is difficult to understand. Some of the most vile, vitriolic things that you can imagine. In a situation like this, where the community is grieving, and my staff, you know, it's City Hall, we can't stop answering the phones here. So my staff had to put up with a lot of that. And uh, it was difficult for them with the situation, knowing, knowing people involved, knowing the community, and hearing the most vile things that you can imagine. Uh, mostly having to do with, I'll say, this Texas gun culture. Um, that seems to be a uh, seems to be a running theme. As the story about the law enforcement response became somewhat problematic, we heard a lot about that. Um, our uh, our our mayor, who was at a press conference with the governor, had an unfortunate emotional outburst. Vince, we want to thank you so much for for coming on to the Thomas Jefferson Hour and 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 talking about this. I know it. I, well, I can't imagine how difficult it must be for you. We really appreciate your time. We need to take a short break. We'll come back to this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, a difficult conversation. Vince DiPiazza, who is the city manager of Uvalde, Texas, contacted the Thomas Jefferson Hour, and we asked him to, to join us in conversation this week. When we took our break, you were talking about something pretty difficult, and that was the calls that your office got and the reactions of, of some people and the gun culture. I really don't even know how we can make that Jeffersonian, but let's try. When, when I mentioned that uh, one of the things that we were hearing was about the gun culture in Texas was typically from people who are, who are on the other side of that issue, from folks that think we're way overboard with that sort of thing here, that uh, we are too lax in our, in our gun laws. And in a, in a sense that uh, this sort of thing is almost deserved uh, because of that, those were difficult. On the other side, I, I mentioned the mayor earlier. Mayor McLaughlin is is a pretty conservative fellow, a gun aficionado, but even he has come out and said that he wouldn't be opposed to some reasonable uh, restrictions on, particularly on the sale of those type of weapons to to uh, young people and background checks. He doesn't think that's a problem, and he's a guy that owns a lot of guns, has hunted, keeps them for personal safety, all that kind of thing. This is one of the, the, the topics I, you know, I, I don't really want to get into too deep because I think it turns into something like uh, guns good, guns bad, and then we argue at each other and we get nowhere. We get absolutely nowhere. I read that in your email and I really appreciated that sentiment. I want to give you a sense though, because Clay asked about uh, an example of, of the kind of call you were getting. So this one particularly stands out in my mind. Our city secretary here is a, is a person who she's, She's got a young family. She's got children that that were in uh, that were on sports teams with uh, with some of the deceased children. And after being lambasted about how could she work for an organization like this, you guys are terrible. Uh, hope your kids are next. Oh my. Here's here's my thought about this. Something like this happens. There's no way you can say that this is uh, is not a, a horrible, appalling, unnecessary incident that you know raises all the worst questions about guns and and Americans and so on i can't understand how anyone from the left or the right would disturb the flow of calls into the city manager's office at this time to opinionate about guns or how dare you this or make sure you don't do that or you deserve this because of texas's uh, gun culture and so on I try to think, what would it take for me to intrude in a in a FEMA emergency with some knuckleheaded opinion that I happen to have about a, a town I've never been to in a state that I've seldom visited? Doesn't that, David, seem to you like that's also a disease? It's fear. It's the desire to have a rule that you can fall back on that's right or wrong, black and white, and, and very simple. But I, you know, I get really frustrated with this. I, I, I keep coming back to it, it took the the death of all of these children and citizens of Texas to get Congress to move. I mean, if it moves, we should be a bit ashamed of ourselves that that it, it took this kind of a tragedy to to make things move. I mean, it, it's. I have I struggle with that. Vince, let me ask you this question. A year ago, six months ago, or a month ago, could you have imagined as the city manager that something like this could happen in Uvalde? 
Well, I guess uh, on an abstract level, I think we all we all know because there've been so many of these kind of events that the uh, that the kind the mass shooting thing could happen in your town. And you know there are plans in place and and law enforcement trains to react to these events. And I think the emphasis is on the word react, and that's something I'd like to talk about in a little while. But um, no, I mean, who can when it really presents itself? You know, it's almost unbelievable. It took me several days after the event to, to not wake up in the morning in the fog of, of first thing I hear is, you know, the radio on NPR, NPR of course. <laughs> and uh, and then they're, they're talking about it the first thing when I wake up in the morning. I go, no, this was real. This really happened here. So you actually, I mean, you actually, the first morning had to kind of realize again that this thing that wasn't a nightmare, it wasn't a bad dream, that this had happened. Yeah, I think I've, I've talked to several people who had who had similar experiences that you know in the same way. It seemed like a nightmare, and when you you get up in the morning, it, <coughs> you were reminded in fact that it was real. You know, I'd like to know more about you, Vince. I mean, what, tell us what kind of a gentleman you are. <laughs> well, uh, like I said, I've been in this business for a long time. Uh, I actually intended to do this. Uh, I got exposure to the profession. Through my mother, incidentally, who uh, worked for a city manager in the town that that we moved to when we first moved to Texas in the mid '70s, so I got to know those folks, and it seemed like an interesting job. And uh, so I ended up getting a degree in political science and another one in public administration, and then and then worked my way up in the business. And I've managed small towns. My previous position before Uvalde was a small town in the Texas Panhandle on the southern end of the High Plains, uh, Dumas, Texas. Of course. Yeah. Well, you said in your email that um, there was a Kansas connection that you had seen Clay in performance, and uh, it was uh, would have been either the late '90s or 2000, right around that time. It was, uh, I believe, Clay was at Garden City High School Auditorium, perhaps, and uh, I was the assistant city manager in Garden City at the time. My before I out of state, I've spent most of my career in Texas, but I had five years in Kansas, you know, and. Uh, Kansas, the western Kansas, uh, western Oklahoma, western Nebraska, eastern Colorado, eastern New Mexico, and the Texas Panhandle and South Plains are all, to me, kind of a very similar area to where, where you guys are. Uh, the southern end of the High Plains was similar economy, similar solid people, uh, just a wonderful area. So you, you've been in many small communities in the Midwest in your career, and I, I keep thinking about Uvalde and how can that be different from the town I live in or the many cities that you've worked in? I mean, this this kind of violence and, and tragedy, none of us are immune from that. We like to think in our little town that we're safe, that, oh, that would never happen here. But it can happen anywhere. It can. And uh, Uvalde may, may be like all those other towns. Maybe the one difference is is the proximity to the border and and the sort of the bicultural culture that has that has evolved here over the years? Um, I don't know. That's that's probably incidental to what we're really talking about. But uh, I think it's interesting. And being you know, at seven and a half years, I'm still relatively a newcomer to this part of the state. Although I'm I'm familiar with it uh, from travels. And my first full time job in city government was up the road from here in another hill country town called Kerrville. But um, uh, the, the border has always been fluid. I mean, people have, at least until recent times, lots of back and forth. Um, that still goes on, but it's probably not as prominent as it used to be. Families on both sides, 
Um, my wife is Hispanic. She's of native Texan and her mother's family is from the area south of San Antonio. And for all we can determine, they were here for a long time and they never actually crossed the border. The border crossed them at some point in history. You know? So, so the, and there's a lot of folks like that in this part of the world. Their, their roots are deep in sort of the Texas-Mexican connection, so to speak. So do you have children yourself? I do. Mine are grown and, and out of the house. So, um, But you had to think of that. I mean, when this happened, you had to think, what if my children were in that school? Right. And I, I have grandchildren now, and, and my oldest just turned 10 and would have been the, you know, the same age as, as the kids in that classroom. I want to go back to this. I want to get on uh, pretty quickly here to what you think needs to happen. And I don't necessarily mean that about the national gun um, regulation debate, but what needs to happen in a more, um, maybe a more spiritual sense. But but just this, you know, when this first happens, um, it's it's sort of like Maslow's hierarchy. You do what you have to do to stabilize the situation. So you apprehend the shooter, you if, if, if you can, you uh, see to the wounded, you create instant uh, support and counseling for the families, uh, you coordinate um, outside law enforcement agencies that are coming to town, etc. But it is it doesn't take very long, and I watch this unfold on national news, before hard questions begin to be asked. Why was the response so late? Uh, was there cowardice involved? Was it did a teacher uh, leave a door open? Uh, you know these kind of questions of wanting to assign responsibility and blame come pretty quickly in situations like this. And I'm, I don't know this, but I'm guessing that even as city manager, you felt scrutiny. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, our police department was one of several agencies on the scene, but obviously we're the local police. And so we have a very prominent part in that. Uh, the police chief of Uvalde is my appointment. So he works for me and, and we have a close working relationship. So it's, it's, you can't, you know, yeah, you're, you're part of that. You're part of the scrutiny. I'm part of, you know, I'm part of the decision-making on responding to media requests and, and that sort of thing, which there are a lot of, and we've taken some hits for, I'll, for lack of a better term, I'll say uh, for transparency, but we're sort of caught in the middle here. And I, I think this is a, a story that needs to come out. You, investigations are going on and uh, the district attorneys, well, actually, we've got four investigations going on. The uh, the Texas Rangers, part of the DPS, the initial investigating agency. We've got, you know, because we thought we were not getting necessarily a fair shake, the, the mayor asked the president when the president came to town if he would have the Justi Justice Department review the investigation. We have the local district attorney, and we have now a uh, committee of uh, legislators from the Texas House that are sitting in our council chambers upstairs from here and uh, they've taken rough residence in our small city hall. And uh, it's, to me, it's a bit of a circus environment for that. But so those things are all going on. Everybody wants answers. We're being told not to say too much. So I miss particularly by the district attorney and, and, and the Texas Rangers, you know, you can't, this is an ongoing investigation. Uh, and, and our own, our own legal team, you know, it's not surprising that the lawyers were involved pretty early. And we're as frustrated, we're, we're probably almost as frustrated as, as the public in terms of what we're finding out, because it seems that 
some of the press may know a little more about this than we do. Uh, and I'm not sure how they're getting their information, but. Um, if I were in your situation and just uh, sleepless, working 18, 20 hours a day, um, you know, when not when not actively making calls or taking them or, or or doing other things of that sort, agonizing and and reflecting and trying to to stay focused. The last thing I want to see is the politicians come rolling over the hill in their cars, because they're politicians, and that means that their their um, their methods are not necessarily dedicated to the search for truth or the stabilizing of a situation. There's inevitably grandstanding. Uh, they suck some of the oxygen out of the room. They take time. They, they force you to give time to something where your time might be better spent somewhere in some other way. I know you want to be careful about that, but that has to be a frustrating part of this. Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, and, and you're right about the, pol the politicking. So this is one of the one of the things too. I've always wanted to make a point about a small town city council. You might, like I mentioned earlier, my mayor is a pretty conservative guy. He would probably not be inclined to ask any favors of the current presidential administration. But he did that day and had a civil conversation with our president. And we have civil conversations here when we're deciding policy at the, at the local level, particularly in a small town, because these people. They know everyone. They, you, know, they, you see them in the grocery store. You see them in church. They're they're part of the community. They're not uh, they're not in some office in Washington or Austin with their staff surrounding them. That kind of thing. They're they're out here with 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 everybody. You can talk to the mayor. You can call him at his home, and he'll answer. That's the kind of thing in a small town like this. And although he's very conservative politically, I don't think he has that luxury in his position as mayor of a small town. We've got practical problems that that we have to solve. And he doesn't approach them in an ideological way, and neither do the rest of the council. They don't always agree, but they they generally find common ground and make decisions, and we move on. That's the way I think politics is supposed to work. I want you to try to sort this out. And I'm not even sure how to ask the question, but on the one hand, you're sorrowing, you're grieving, you're mourning, you're um, you, you you're disturbed in a very profound way by this. Then there's a second range where you are frustrated because you want answers and you want to give answers and you want to do this right and not everything goes smoothly in a situation like this. Not only politicians roll in, but so do all the networks and all the cable shows and all the bloggers and social media and so on. And then there's the third area where, and you, you tell me, but I'm guessing you're also hurt because there is... The blame game, and and because of the the rage and the and and the 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 misrepresentations and so on. So how do you, how are you managing the emotional toll of this thing? Um, and you're not one of the grieving families. It should be said. Well, I'm, and I'm not. I'm 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 grieving like the community is, and grieving the the fact that something like this could have happened here, and and feeling the pain in a in a. In a detached way, I guess, from the from the families are the ones that are truly in pain, and and then and then the whole type of incident. I mean, we you know we understand natural disasters and tragedies like that, but this was not a natural disaster. And one of the things that really hurts about this that the kid that did this, he was one of us. He was from here. He grew up in this community, and this is something that that there again, I'd like to get to more of in a, in a moment. But uh, yeah. 
the, the, the press comes in here for a couple of weeks. They talk to folks. People, lots of people are willing to, to talk. Those tend to be people with strong opinions. Uh, you know, the, the families, the families that have been involved in this, one of the, one of the issues we've had is, is the, just the press, you know, barging into funerals and, or at least trying to, we've tried to keep that under control and the press has criticized us for, for that. They were impeding them from doing their jobs, but the families are tired and I'm sure they'll have, you know, we, as they move further along in the grieving and, and anger takes over, I'm sure they'll have some stories to tell there, but I wish, I wish the national press in particular would have backed off and let us get through the, the initial, the initial shock and grief of this before they were so obtrusive. The last funeral that's going to be have here of when the children was yesterday. Um, I happen to be a, a, a musician as well, an amateur, and uh, I was part of the music for that service. And, you know, you're part of the community. You do these things, and and then I have official duties too. And and our staff and council are the same way. And uh, you you're a part of it. You're part of it on a personal level and on a professional level. You've said several times that there there are things that you want to say, and I want to make sure we give you a chance to do that. But one last question along these lines: uh, as you look at what happened in the aftermath. How well did the city and did law enforcement handle this crisis? Um, the crisis, the aftermath of it. Well, the the immediate. I mean, heading going there. You know, that we've heard about the delays in getting into the room and so on. You're you're an insider. Give us your best sense of 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 how well this was uh, handled. Well, I I wish I could give you more detail. I think I'm going to have to just leave it at at. Uh, I think this. The full story is yet to be told. There are a number of factors, I think, that that uh, are not getting as much attention. I'd love to tell you more, and I hope what I guess the bottom line is: we hope that the, that the details and the truth of the event come out. If if we have to take some lumps over it, we'll have to take those because that that will be the truth if that's what comes out of this. But I think it's going to be a, a lot more complicated situation than people are thinking right now. I mean, we live in a in a culture that wants quick, easy, uh, Twitter-sized answers. We're talking with Vince DiPiazza, the city manager of Uvalde, Texas, who was there, of course, on that horrible day, May 24th. We have many more questions for you, Vince. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to a special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, an insider's view of what happened on May 24th and its aftermath. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to this sad but important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We're talking with city manager Vince DiPiazza, a longtime listener to the Jefferson Hour. He was uh, there on that fatal day, May 24th, 2022, 19 children killed, two teachers. Uh, he contacted the Jefferson Hour because he thought that this is something that needs to be talked about in, from somebody who was there. And so, Vince, I really want to get to that. But let me ask one last question about the the national um, narrative of this. I, I, I follow these things as much as one does. They're so wearying. It's like, oh, this, this time it's Uvalde, then it's Parkland, then it's Buffalo, then it's you know San Bernardino. If you don't live there, you sort of chalk it up to this national mania. But if you live there, of course... It's a shattering event, and it's hard to understand how the community ever really is the same, and maybe it can't ever really be the same. But do you think that the national narrative, which is that they did, they did a, they did what they, they did a pretty good job, but there were some delays, and uh, there's a little kind of a little bit of kind of Mayberry Barney Fife narrative that's going on nationally. How do you think that's um, grossly unfair, partly unfair? How would you characterize it? I think it's unfair. Our law enforcement people at, at all levels. So, you know, the city police department, the school, the sheriff's department, the DPS, the border patrol. Um, I think, well, those are, those are the primary agencies that were on the scene. Those people, including ours, are well-trained. They've been through these scenarios before, or at least in training, you know, nobody's ever faced this thing for real. And, uh, I would say probably that every situation is different. And I, I think one of the things that might come out of this is some rethinking of, of what to do. It, it's frustrating in a way because, well, okay, so now we're going to rethink security when we take, take, take different approaches. And once again, after the fact, you know, we can, we're going to harden the targets. We're going to put more police officers in the school. We're going to, I don't know what we're going to do in Texas if we're going to talk about arming teachers or that kind of thing. That's possible, I suppose. All those things are after the fact solutions. When the kid that did this and he committed an, a monstrous act, and but it's it's been becoming more and more hard for me to think of him as a monster when I find out a little bit more about his life and his upbringing. And let's talk about that. He's he, he's a kid that has ties to the community. Give us a sense of 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 who he is, and you saying your view of him is changing somewhat. Okay, so the the, uh, the young man, and I mean, 18 years old, he's apparently old enough to buy that kind of weapon in Texas, but uh, I still think of him as a kid, a kid who inflicted this sort of thing on, on the kids in his own community. And he was being raised at the moment by his grandparents. He comes from a uh, problematic family environment. He's had a, an issue with school attendance. I believe the, the narrative is that he is a dropout. I don't know all the details, so some of this might be not entirely accurate, but he had, like so many others, he left clues behind, clues in social media, clues in his behavior. He had some problematic behaviors at school. I mean, it's hard to, to, to look at what we know about him now and think that we didn't miss some clues along the way. The, the fact that this, this kid was troubled and he was on a path that had we intervened earlier, we might have been able to nudge him off. And I think this is the kind of the key that we need to, to focus on in these events. The gun debate, you know, like we said, it's it, uh, 
it sucks all the all the air out of the out of the debate and and ends up polarizing people and we may or may not be able to do anything about guns and they may or may not be effective in the long run i don't know but we have to figure out how to stop making mass shooters if you had a red flag law in texas would he have would he have tripped the switch I don't believe so because his only criminal record was as a juvenile. So I've been told that as soon as he turned 18, that that was basically, that was basically a non-factor. And, you know, that may be a, something that needs to be addressed in the red flag laws. But my understanding is that that, that would not have come up. But, but before that, you know, there were, there were multiple red flags, you might say. And if we had a program in place to identify those kids and then intervene in their lives earlier and, and, I, I'm not a social scientist. I don't, I don't know all the details, but I know that that the idea is not original. There are there are places that are they're doing some of these things right now. Um, there are academics that have done research in it. I've started to reach out to those people. I'm learning as I do some more research that there are schools around the country that are that are part of these programs to identify these at-risk children. Social media has a role in this, I think, and I realize that that raises privacy issues and that sort of thing. But that's one of the places where particularly the, and I'll, I'm going to call him the angry young male, who seems to be a, a kind of a common denominator in these shootings. It's not universal, but, but that seems to be a, a commonality among these incidents. And they do leave clues on social media. And I think we, we can figure this out. And putting those clues together, schools talk to us, they identify this sort of thing. If, the families reach out and, and know that they can. And that combined with, with some effort to look at what, what posts are being made in social media, we can maybe spot kids who, who need, I'm going to call it a soft intervention. You don't send the cops to their house immediately. You send a social worker or you send a law enforcement officer trained in, in mental health and you find out what's up with this kid. You know, for some of them, the intervention might be not much more than making sure they have a decent meal once in a while. For others, they may need some mentoring. For others, they may need some psychological help. But the earlier we do this, if we catch a little bit of this on the front end, maybe we can nudge these kids off the path. And, and in any event, you know, they're not all going to be, end up being mass shooters. We know that. They may not all end up being criminals, but, but any intervention, it would seem like, has a good chance of improving their lives in the future. The description you made of an alienated 18-year-old kid uh, who's dropped out of school, who's had some discipline problems, who, there's truancy, he's had some brushes with the law. That's a pretty common thing in America, you know, the, and, but but not one in a thousand, not one in a hundred thousand takes an AR-15 into a, a public place. Well, and, and, and the one factor I omitted was the bullying. I think he was also a I think he was both a perpetrator of and a, and a recipient of bullying. And that seems to be a thing in schools these days, too. And, and you're right. You know, I'm sure there's some smarter people than me that can, that can hone, hone the information down and make it, take a more sophisticated approach, to, approach than I'm outlining and, and not, not waste intervention on, on kids who are going through some temporary trouble and that's serious. But if we don't start asking those questions, if we don't start talking to those children, we're going to continue to have this problem. And the gun, guns are an issue, I think, but what's more an issue to me is, is how do you create a person, a person that's capable of picking a gun and shooting a bunch of children? Why did he do this? Why? That's a good question. I don't know that we know that, really. What's your best sense? A 
troubled kid on a bad path, acting out some anger in a way that we seem to be desensitized to through our culture, through, through our reality, through the games they play, all that kind of thing. And I've, I've never considered myself, uh, you know, somebody who wants to restrict people's free speech, but, <laughs> you know, maybe violent video games and violent media ought to be restricted to, to young people. And there's, are restricted from young people. And there are people, you know, we've had those kinds of things in our, in our history. And First Amendment stuff, I'm a Jeffersonian at heart. You know, more, more information is better. Freedom, you know, the, the, bad, the bad stuff is taken care of by the, by the good speech. You know, the bad speech is taken care of. I, I believe that all on an abstract level, but this is a dilemma in our, our society, right? The, the, uh, the, the conflict between freedom and security, which, which moves back and forth over time based on what's going on in, in your society at the time. Why fourth graders? If I'm a disaffected 18-year-old and I'm going to take a gun somewhere, I'm and I, you know, I, I hate to even talk about it, but I might want to get revenge against my peers. I might want to get revenge against teachers. I might want to take out, uh, you know, who knows? But why would anyone target fourth graders who have no? They're not connected to this story in any way. I don't know. That's a mis That's a mystery to all of us. You know that. It reminds us a little bit of, of uh, Newtown, Connecticut, and Sandy Hook. You know, I, it's almost like this 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 kid who he had no sense of reality. I mean, how how can you have a sense of reality and want to do something like that? It, there's this this great uh, Lakota saying that um, keeps coming back to me about you act as if you have no relatives. Uh, you know, there's no connection. What's being done to help those who are left? Counseling services have been going on since the event has, has taken place. We had a lot of offers for that that we've sort of banked too. So I, I suspect this is going to be a fairly lengthy ongoing operation. How do you talk to kids in schools? I don't know. Our parents are right now, all, I, I'm sure this happened all over the country, are, are rethinking whether they want to send their kids to school, whether they want to school them at home, if they want to send them to different schools. I'm sure that that dynamic is, is uh, occurring in many places right now. In the several minutes that we have left, what have we not talked about? What have we missed that, that you'd like to address? Well, I, I don't know that there's anything we missed, but I, I, I think I want to emphasize again that I think we know, I think we have the knowledge to attempt to intervene in the lives of young people that may be headed down a destructive path like this. I think we know how to do this. I think we, I think social scientists, I think there's data, in other words. I think there's data to support the idea that we can identify kids that, at risk. And I think we know enough to know how to intervene. The question is, how serious are we about preventing this stuff? How serious are we about addressing it on the front end rather than the back end after the bullets have been fired? Um, it takes resources, and I think this is one of the, the things I'm coming coming to realize. Even the state of Texas is not, not known for maybe being the most progressive in its politics. In 2019, the legislature established an organization that's, uh, I forget what it's called, Childhood Con Mental Health Consortium or something like that, with the idea of, of doing exactly what I'm talking about. The problem is, does it have enough resources? Does it have enough reach in the state yet? It appears not to. One of the articles that was in the in the media, the Texas Tribune, was that program hadn't made it to us in Uvalde yet. 
Um, so it's out there. We know how to do this. We just need the resolve to commit some resources to it. So Vince, let me ask you a, a couple of quick questions here. Uh, we talk about parents. Of course, the, the perpetrator has parents. And although they don't sound like Rotarians, uh, they're grieving too. This is a very hard time for them. What can you tell us about them? Don't know a lot about them. Most of the information I've got is secondhand. Um, again, they've they've had apparently they've had issues in their lives with law and with with substance abuse. I mean, and this is not you know this is not a family of great means either in, in all respects. Um, very modest, very modest house. The, the kid was living with his grandparents, and I you know don't shouldn't neglect to say that the grandmother was the first victim in this in this thing. Uh, right. He shot her at the very beginning and then and then went to the school um so they're they're suffering in their own way i'm sure and uh, i don't know how much sympathy they're getting from the community it's it's another one of those things you know i'm sure there's a lot of that you know that apple didn't fall too far from the tree talk but that's probably unfair uh, yeah it's hard these are very complex people of modest means they have a tough time you know in in the modern economy so what happens next, Vince? I mean, uh, in situations like this, um, of course, it's an impossible question, but I come from a town um, in Western North Dakota, so not so um, dissimilar from yours, and it had 13,000 people when I was growing up, about double that now. If this happened in that town, it's hard for me to think that the town could ever be the same. That, that, that Four years from now, it, it's not the same 4th of July. It's not the same Thanksgiving. It's not the same homecoming or baccalaureate. What's your sense of what happens to Uvalde? I think, you know, we've just been added to, to a list of communities that uh, that have gone through this. And I think it's even it's even worse for a small town because you know people don't know about you but the one thing they will know from here on out is it's this place where this terrible thing happened and uh, i think this is going to be a long road of recovery uh, and the town trying to get its identity back there's you know there's 16,000 good people here and it's unfair to characterize the, the town because of this incident and we're we're talking about how you know we won't ever forget this, but we've got to get past it somehow. Uh, and it'll always be a part of our history. Hopefully there'll be a, a way to turn that into something good. Uh, we owe that to the victims. When this high school graduation occurs for this class eight or so years from now, there are going to be some blank silhouettes on that stage. I mean, in other words, this isn't something that two years from now is in the past. This stays with it. Those families, that class, that school... And so we just feel heartbroken for you. And you've you really helped us. And I think listeners to the Jefferson Hour, we appreciate your candor. We can tell from the tone of your voice how hard this is and, and how much you carry. Just this one quick last question, Vince. What, what do you want the listeners to the Jefferson Hour to do? I think I would like the listeners of the Jefferson Hour to talk about the issues that I was talking about in terms of spending public treasure and effort on, on trying to stop these things from happening by, by derailing the, the problematic children. I mean, it's, it's kids I think I'm talking about. Early intervention to get them off that path that leads to, to tragedy like this. I think we know how to do this. I think we can. 
I think we need some resolve. I, you know, it's, it's been, it's become way too simple in, uh, in our politics to talk about, uh, after the fact solutions. We don't do a very good job on, on, uh, on the, on the prevention. We really don't. And it doesn't play well. It's always easy to talk about more cops, more laws, more this, more that, and less about stuff, which is hard to measure. I mean, how many, I've always been fond of asking police chiefs that I work with, how many crimes did you prevent today? This is almost, it's, it's something that can't really be measured very well. And we wouldn't be, we won't be able to measure, I don't think, un, except over a long period of time, if we actually, if, if the effort becomes widespread enough to, to make it, to make an impact. So it's a bit of a, an act of faith, I think, that, uh, that social scientists with data uh, are reliable and the information we have is reliable and we can actually do something but can we at least can we agree if we can't agree on guns can we at least agree to try to do something like this it sounds almost sounds like something out of the 60s doesn't it like you know <laughs> back in the day when we used to talk about uh, preventing poverty and 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 uh, and early you know that's where head start and the child's life came from all those programs that were sort of naive and or seem naive to us today Mr. DiPiazza, we so appreciate your time. We'd like to check in with you one year from now in June of 2023 to get a sense of where you are, where the community is, what's been resolved, and whether any of the very modest reforms that you have suggested will be adopted by Uvalde or other places. You've been listening to a very important and difficult uh, edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We'll see you all next week for another important meeting of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701 575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite Number no. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Thank you.